What's it like to write your first novel after decades of writing short stories? George Saunders will be here to talk about his debut novel, Lincoln in the Bardo. So I kept saying to myself, if I drop dead while I'm writing this book, no doubt the next thing that happens is going to be really awkward and surprising. Why does time zip right by and then go so slow? Alan Burdick will be here to tell us about his book, Why Time Flies. There was this other kind of time in me, enabling me to perceive the world as I do, and I just didn't know what that was, really. And I wanted to find out, you know, really, is there a difference between the kind of time that's in me and the the time that's out there? Plus, Maria Russo, our children's books editor, will be here to talk about the 150th anniversary of Laura Ingalls Wilder and the legacy of her little house on the Prairie Books. And we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. George Saunders joins us now. He is the author of many short story collections, including most recently 10th of December, which was one of our 10 best books of the year. And now he has a novel called Lincoln in the Bardo. George, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for asking me, Pamela. I think the first question on most people's minds when they hear the title of this novel is, I think, hopefully not who is Lincoln, um, but uh, (laughs) what is the Bardo? What is the Bardo? Yeah, well, the Bardo is technically just, it's a Tibetan word that just means transitional space or transitional zone. So technically, we're in one right now. We're we're in the Bardo between birth and death. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the one that the title refers to is the one that happens between the moment of your death and then whatever happens next, which is in the Tibetan tradition would be your, your reincarnation. So it's kind of a purgatorial state, except that in my understanding of it and my kind of reconception of it, it's uh, a little bit more transactional. A person can sort of progress their way out of the borrow just by realizing what they are and, and, and why they might still be stuck there. And then the second sense is that Lincoln himself during this period, he's kind of in a transition too, which is you know, thinking, I suppose, it's going to be a quick war. He's going to be a heroic figure. It's going to be easy. Uh, and he's just lost his child. His son has died. And now he's also at the same time seeing that this war is not going to be any kind of easy thing. And it's going to go on for a long time and cost a lot of lives. So to get back to the, the Bardo before we talk about the rest of the Lincoln part of it, um, <laughs> there's a bit of the sort of personal willpower as opposed to the idea of purgatory where you're it's sort of not right. And you. maybe even kind of like understanding you know, of yourself and who you are and why you're there. So I have to ask, did you are you a Tibetan Buddhist? Did you? Yes. And I'm not a very I'm a kind of an amateur one. So I quickly realized that I couldn't really I, I wasn't qualified to write a book about the bardo, which kept strictly to what the text say it is. Mm-hmm. So I kind of used that word, I guess, a little bit as a trigger to myself to make sure that this afterlife stayed weird. You know, mm-hmm. I, my, I think the thing I was afraid of is that you'd have an afterlife that was too recognizably the one that we all think it is. So I kept saying to myself, if, if I drop dead <laughs> while I'm writing this book, no doubt the next thing that happens is going to be really awkward and surprising. And it's, it's not going to be shaped or it's not going to perform for me the way that I thought it did when I was still living. So that was one of my, my kind of tropes was let, let's make sure that whatever this Bardo is, it's got a, um, like morphologically, and I want it to be shaped really strangely. So the logic is different in some places than others, maybe, or 
different for different people. So it's not it's not at all strictly speaking a Tibetan Tibetan bardo. You just made reference to um, while you were writing this book, you were working on this book for a long time, um, thirteen years. Well, depending how you define it, yeah, I, I heard the story that was the inciting thing way back in the Bill Clinton years. Uh, just an offhanded remark by my wife's cousin that Lincoln had, you know, gone into the crypt and, and interacted with his, his dead son's body. And I just kind of kept kicking it down the road all those years. I, I had a feeling I couldn't do it, uh, ma- mainly just because it seemed like something that was going to have to be approached pretty earnestly. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I wasn't sure that I had the chops to do that. So I just kind of kept going, yeah, that's a good one. And I'll, you know, and then right before 10th of December came out, I, I kind of had this little talk with myself, just like, you know, dude, you're 50, whatever I was. You sat yourself uh, down? I, I sat myself down, yeah, talked to myself, bought myself a drink. Uh, and, I, you know, just like this is something that you've been wanting to write your whole life. You've now been through many of the major milestones of life. You know, I'm, I'm old. I have beautiful kids or, you know, everything. Why is this material too earnest for you or too whatever, too something? Uh, so I made a little contract with myself that I kind of do th- three three months of trying it just to see if it caught fire. And uh, but because I I kind of want to be that person who you know, it, it, you know, on the deathbed or whatever said, uh, you know, well I had a nice writing career, but I just got a little scared, you know, and mm-hmm. I and I decided it would be safer to just keep doing what I was doing. So it was one of those kind of things. So that was a nice kind of a you know, midlife leap or something like that. Let's go back to that that original historical story of Lincoln visiting his 11-year-old son Willie's corpse in the crypt. It's so haunting. What what yeah. happened? Well, I mean, he the sad thing, you know, as a parent will feel this, Lincoln's had arranged this party that they were going to have, and it was kind of understood to be a way to save some money. And I think also they were a little bit under the gun for throwing a party uh, during wartime. So they, they came up with this idea of having kind of a, a different kind of a party. And there it was a lot of planning. And they're having it. And just before, the day before, the two boys, Willie and Tad, got sick, high fever. Mm-hmm. So they put them to bed and they kind of conferred. And a doctor said, well, they'll probably be fine. Just go ahead and have the party. So they had this party, the Marine Band, big, big thing. Lincoln and Mary are running back and forth from the party to the to the uh, boys' sick room. And then, just so happens, they, Willie took a turn for the worst that night, mm-hmm. or shortly thereafter, and uh, that the illness had killed him. So there was some talk in the, in the media about how irresponsible it was, I and mean, I'm sure they internalized that as a, you know, something, a, a bad decision they'd made. This was in February 1862? Yeah, yeah. And so then, um, then he, he passed away, and in it was kind of the, uh, well, one of the many low moments of the war. So it was kind of a, you know, not exactly an uplifting idea, but apparently he was, you know, this is his favorite kid and the one that he saw the most of himself in. Mm-hmm. And um, so newspapers at the time reported that he had gone back and actually gone into the crypt. And, it's, and the thing that intrigued me was it said on several occasions. So I kept thinking, okay, I can kind of see the first time, yes. you know, especially in that culture. But, but anybody, you know, when someone... You lose somebody, we like to say they're not there anymore, and yet they kind of are. You know, there's it's the same body, it's the same. So I understood that, but then I was thinking, well, what would stop him? Let's say he, he went there twice. What would stop him the third time? Now, you know, some of the answers are, are obvious, but you kind of wonder what's the progression that one goes through to be so 
kind of lovably off kilter to go into the crypt, what happens that corrects that? I think originally I thought it would be on three successive nights, Mm -hmm. but that didn't feel, as I tried to do it, it didn't feel right. So it was one night. So that makes it even more interesting to me. Like you go in there at 11, how do you get out of the graveyard, you know? Do any accounts exist of, of Lincoln himself talking about those repeated visits to Willie's Crypt? No, none. And that was one of the other intriguing things was that I don't actually know how anyone would know that he did that. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I, he didn't certainly didn't speak about it. Uh, he could have been observed going. We, we really just don't know. And in, in a sense, that was the perfect kind of seed because there were so many things that weren't known about it. It, it could have just been some reporter making it up. I kind of don't think so. It's a weird thing to make up. Yeah. But we just don't know. So then you think, well, well, what time of day was it? I, I assume night. Who saw it? And that gives it gives you just enough wiggle room to kind of imagine how it might have or maybe should have happened. So you knew you wanted to write about this. And the challenge for you was the the material was so earnest. Did you know that you wanted it to be a novel as opposed to a short story? No. You know, over the many years of failing to write novels or writing novels and having them shrink uh, into pamphlets or, you know, disintegrate altogether, I kind of learned that the best stance for me is to actually try not to write a novel. Just don't extend, uh, don't dwell, don't bloat. Just try to make everything short, short as I can. So I think originally I had tried it as a play for a few years, and you can sort of see the traces of that in yes. this book, but there's not a single line, I don't think, from the from the play. There was, it's funny, when I was writing in play mode, it's like when I try to write a poem. It gets this kind of schmaltzy, weird, performed quality that doesn't really work. So I, I, at one point I was talking to uh, Deborah Treisman at The New Yorker, and I was telling her about this failed play, and she just said, well, why don't you write it as a novel? And, you know, in retrospect, it seemed like, yeah, but something about her saying it and, and using the word novel and thinking, oh, yeah, I could write it the way I write prose. It just kind of threw a switch. And then at the same time, one of my former students, Adam Levin, said just kind of offhandedly that he thought if I ever wrote a novel, it would be a series of monologues like I had done in this story called Four Institutional Monologues for McSweeney's. Oh, and also I've been reading, I hadn't read Infinite Jest until a few years ago, and Reading that, it occurred to me that that's a book of monologues, actually, when you really look at it. So, you know, sometimes for me, the artistic seed, it's kind of multi, uh, multi-tracked. multi You know, there's mm-hmm. several different things that happen at once or, or roughly at once that kind of just throw a switch in your head. So I, I thought, okay, I don't really want to write a novel, but I really want, I want to finally take this material on and discharge it. And I, I kind of felt like if I could do it, I would learn something really valuable in the process. And, you know, for me, that's really the best reason you write a book is to push the, your inner artistic ball down the field a little bit. So there were multiple challenges then. It was the, the earnest factor and the, the, the novel thing um, and presumably just the daunting idea of writing about Lincoln in some way, such a towering figure who has been the subject of previous books. Um, oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, try to write a novel about Jesus, you know. Right. <laughs> like that. Yeah. Go. Um, so that's a lot to take on in your first novel. Yeah, well, and, and I, I guess for me, the way you take those things on is you sort of accept those problems. And this is very new age, but you accept those problems as opportunities. For example, one of the first one problems I came into contact with was, okay, it's in my imagination, it's night. Lincoln sort of sneaks out of the White House. Then suddenly you're like, okay, what's who's narrating this thing? Mm-hmm. So 
asked are, do you want to write a, a long book from Lincoln's point of view? I didn't personally. And not, not for any theoretical reason, but when I turn my sort of writing mind to that, I just go, ugh. Instead of, ooh, I go, ugh. And uh, that's, for me, is a, that's a deal breaker. If the uh, inner uh, Labrador doesn't rise to the voice opportunity, I, I know better than to start. And then you think, well, maybe it's a grave digger, you know, mm-hmm. somebody who stayed a little too late that night, but why in the world is he, right. <laughs> you know, is a, is a grave digger, unless he really likes what he does or something, I don't know, <laughs> but uh, that didn't work. So then so then these other ideas, I, the idea of the kind of monologue in the chorus came into play. And then weirdly, and I have not been able to sequence this correctly as I'm talking about this book, but some way back when, I tried an earlier novel that was also a graveyard novel, and the, the premise of that one was that... Uh, all these dead people in an upstate New York graveyard, and whenever someone died, whenever someone was to die, they would sort of give a roast, you know, or like a they would do a, a life review. So I had about 80 pages of that way back in the 90s, and it was all right, but there was no, it didn't go anywhere. It was just kind of a bunch of monologues. But there were just maybe six or seven pages in there where something had happened with the, uh, the back and forth. Mm-hmm. They, they were set up similar to this book, kind of inspired by chat lines, you know, the and that, especially in the 90s when chat lines first started and, you know, you'd ask a question and the answer would show up three pages later and it was all kind of discombobulated. But there were a few pages of that, that abandoned novel that really were cool, the way they looked on the page, the way that the ghosts were talking past each other and insulting one another. And uh, so I didn't really save any of the text, I don't think, but I, I saved the feeling of the velocity of certain parts of the text. So... At one, I don't remember the order, but at some point I thought, oh, yeah, who would observe in a graveyard? Oh, yeah, the ghost. And I and I sort of had that structural model from before, from like 15 years before. So who knows? You know, it's kind of a blur, actually. You mentioned the form of the novel earlier as sort of at first was a play, and then you, you end up structuring it um, with this in a kind of as a kind of oral history, I think uh, Colson Whitehead, in his review of the book, calls it um, a collage of testimonies. Did that form come naturally? Did you go back and forth between a traditional narrative and until you arrived at this, or how did that evolve? I think, as I, again, as I remember, I think what happened was I I had sort of decided to do the ghost that way with the, with a kind of a monologue and then a, an attribution afterwards. Or maybe at that point it was an at, the attribution came first. I think that's what I did for a while, and then there was this. You know, we talk about pro- problems or opportunities. Then a new problem arrived, which is that, and this is uh, a holdover problem from the '90s novel. With that many ghosts, uh, the reader starts to feel a little jerked around because the ghost is recognized as being in the same family as the dream sequence. You know, so the writer can just write whatever he wants. And because there's no physical constraints on it, it disguises the limit. And I think a reader reading too many of those ghosts in that old book would feel like, all right, all right, you know, mm-hmm. I'm actually just, I'm at your disposal. You don't seem constrained by any kind of reality. So in this book, that factor, uh, and then the second one, which is that when I, by the time I wrote this, I've been thinking about it for a long time, and I had a lot of this stuff almost like novelized in my mind, you know, that party, a party scene. And I had a lot of it already imagined and reimagined. And when I, when I just had the ghost, there was no way for all that historical stuff to come in. Mm-hmm. So at some point for a couple weeks, I'm like, I need some kind of historical spine here just to make, if the reader starts to go, I don't believe these ghosts, or I don't want to read a book all about ghosts. I want to give her something else, some kind of 
like a steady wall to lean against while her belief refills in a certain way. So I thought, well, how do how do I know about all this historical stuff? And I thought, well, I just read it. And uh, that uh, kind of light went on, like, oh, yeah, could you just sample? Just sample that stuff. Don't even just eliminate the middleman. No third-person narration of the things. Just drop them in. And I kind of, like, flinched at that a little bit, like, well, that's not writing, you know, that's typing. Um, but then I tried it for a while. You know, I, I would type all these sections out and cut them up with scissors and get on my, the floor of my room and rearrange them. And the weird thing was some of them were better than others. As we know from editing, you can take a piece and cut it and and move stuff, and suddenly there's life in it. So then it was kind of a, I got a little sneaky kind of ornery voice in my head, like, well, you're, you're a curator. You know, you're sampling right. this stuff. And, and you know, from the beginning, I mean, from the way beginning, my thing was, if I'm going to do this, I don't, I don't want to write a satire on Lincoln. Uh, that's a very beautiful human moment. I don't want to dishonor it. And I had... You know, as I was writing, I had a picture of Willie and a picture of Lincoln up above my, the side of my desk, just to remind me that don't get too lost in the literary stuff. Remember that these are real, a real father and son, right. and that was a real loss. So all of this stuff was kind of, uh, it was came it came out of what it felt like necessity, maybe may an urge to um, not do it the normal way because I, somehow I, I, I don't like that. Uh, but ultimately, it was just to try to serve that emotional core of of that. You know the father in this one. So it's a an experimental novel. It's a historical novel. It's a father son story. It's a book about Lincoln. There's a Tibetan Buddhist element. You threw in a little <laughs> new age thing. Um, very ambitious. Are are do you think you'll do? And there's an, gunfighters and action. Yeah. Will your next book be a novel? Do you think? Or are you going? Back? I really honestly don't know. I I am I'm kind of going back to my the same old artistic principle, which is to see if it goes, ah, or, uh, right. and, and just wait and see, you know, I mean, my first impulse would be to go back to writing stories because that's what I love. And I've always done that. And, and again, this one, I only let it off the leash because it insisted. All right. Well, a pleasure talking to you. Hopefully we'll talk about the next, ah, uh, book, um, <laughs> George, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. George Saunders new book is called Lincoln in the Bardo, his first novel. Maria Russo, our children's books editor, joins us now to talk about Little House on the Prairie. Hi, Maria. Hi, Pamela. Why, after all these years, are we talking about Little House on the Prairie? Well, February 7th was the 150th birthday of Laura Ingalls Wilder, the author of the series. So there's been a lot of new Little House on the Prairie books coming out that people are talking about her, thinking more about what makes these books such an American classic. What does make them such an American classic? Well, good question. Well, so, uh, you know, everyone probably knows these are books, a series of nine novels written for children about Laura Ingalls Wilder's childhood as a pioneer on the frontier. Her family moved from Wisconsin in a covered wagon to Kansas, which was then Indian territory. They turned out they were squatting on land that wasn't, you know, quote-unquote, open to white settlers yet, back to Wisconsin and to Minnesota, to South Dakota, always facing natural disasters and other dangers until they could finally establish uh, a safe home for themselves. So it just caught the whole American westward white expansion and, you know, it just has so much other appeal, too, for, for children and for adults, just of home comforts and 
crafts, you know, and, and making things. Every, you know, the family makes everything from the houses they live in to the, all their own clothes, and they bake and cook. So there's just so much American life in there. And people now, I think, are still reading them. And then, of course, the TV series in the 1970s with Michael Landon as Pa and Melissa Gilbert as Laura. God, that, 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 that kind of ruined it for me, I have to say, for a long <laughs> period. Um, yeah, I think the thing that stuck with me most in terms of home crafts was when we, they made a ball, a ball to play with out of the stomach of a, um, was it a cow? What did they use? Um, uh, probably, yeah, or a pig. A yes, pig, which yes. Which is, of course, you know, all early balls made that way. <laughs> yes, such yeah, fun on the prairie. Tons of stuff like that in, in the book that people are still fascinated by. You know, there's almost a cult of Little House on the Prairie still, people who follow the trail that the family made. And a great book by Wendy McClure a few years ago, The Wilder Life, where she you know, talks about her obsession, and she went and visited all the homesteads and got, in, you know, obsessed with the crafts and the hat making and the butter churning. It's, it's you know, it's addictive. I think every parent I know, including me, likes it um, in part for some of the, the lessons that you teach children in reading those books. It's true. It's true. You know, Ma and Pa Ingalls are really great parents, but one of the things I said in my piece that was really striking to me was that they're, they have no descendants. I mean, that family line did not uh, go down through the generations. Laura had just one child, Rose Wilder Lane, who was actually her, many people call her her co-author on the book. I mean, they really worked closely. Rose was a professional writer and uh, edited heavily the books. And Rose had no children. So, you know, I, I, I say in my piece, there's something that made me think this time around reading through the books that this way of life, you know, has it had its price. Right. <laughs> you know, there was not great health in that family. And, um, you know, you see, and then the, the books, you know, Rose Wilder Lane, there's also this crazy line coming from Little House on the Prairie straight through to very conservative politics today because Rose Wilder Lane was a, became a libertarian, very outspoken anti-government polemicist. And she left everything to a man named Roger McBride, which people might remember that name. He was the 1976 Libertarian candidate for president. Mm-hmm. You know, his campaign was backed by the Koch brothers. Does his family own all the rights to the books? He owned all the rights, right? He, he didn't have children either. I don't know what happened <laughs> then, but he took the rights. And in fact, there's a little bit of you know, there's a complication because Laura had stipulated that after Rose died, the rights would revert back to the library in Missouri, where she lived the end of her life and roger brought a lawsuit against the library and got them to settle so they settled with roger mcbride this little library in missouri for eight hundred and seventy five thousand dollars and he turned those copyrights into this multi-million dollar media empire the tv shows the endless books franchise and of course conservative politics you know he's he was when he died he was chair of, a, I think, the, the Republican Liberty Caucus, something, some foundation for, you know, it's sort of, you know, right-wing, libertarian-flavored Republican politics. Hmm. So that's where a lot of the money ended up going. How infused are the books with that libertarian streak of ideology? Well, you know, it's interesting reading them through this time as an adult. I really saw it. You know, there's just there'll be set pieces where people will make a speech, kind of an anti-government speech, like Mr. Edwards comes through. South Dakota at one point and says, you know, I'm leaving here, the taxes, I'm not paying these taxes, the government's moving in on us, you know, so fast. As a child, of course, I didn't notice those speeches, you know, and I'm, apparently Rose Wilder Lane was really the person who put those in and those, those moments. Mm-hmm. But I, so I think they're there, but the question is, you know, do children even register them? <laughs> you know, I would 
probably say no. I don't. I don't think that's what makes the books. I don't think the books have had a huge part in any kind of rightward drift, you know, of of American politics from that point of view. It's more the money. What else struck you in rereading the books again as an adult? Well, of course, you can't get away from the the really terrible treatment of Native Americans in the books, and in, you know, a lot of Native American educators and writers now don't think the books should be read. They think they're just kind of beyond the pale. Ma has this outright hatred of Indians that we see again and again. Mm -hmm. Laura is more ambivalent and actually, I think, sort of interested in their way of life. Part of her would, would, you know, would maybe prefer to live how they live, you know, like many of us. But, um, but it's it just, you know, even Laura, a lot of it is just fear-based, stereotypical depictions of Native Americans. So, um, you know, like the, the glittering eyes, like snakes, you know, the one passage I remember. So I think that if you're going to read these books with children today, which I think is, you know, I'm ambivalent about this stuff, but I think if you're able to discuss it with them, yes. why, you know, how are the Indians shown in this book? Why do you think they're shown that way? That's fine. And then I would also say... You know, in the interim, we have a great series by the the novelist Louise Erdrich called Birchbark House, also for middle grade, you know, 8 to 12 readers. And those books are kind of the corrective to Little House on the Prairie. They're the exact same story of white expansion into the upper Midwest, but from the Native American, the Ojibwe point of view. A little Ojibwe girl tells her story, her family story. So, you know, that's a fantastic thing to give kids along with Little House on the Prairie. Did Erdrich, who is a Native American uh, writer herself, did she set out explicitly to write those books as a kind of counter-narrative or companion? Yeah, that's that's pretty clear, you Mm -hmm. know, because it's the same, because, you know, she's from that part of the world, that northern Midwest um, area where the Ingalls family ended up. So there, you know, it's just it's one of the the great things about uh, children's literature is that there's, you know, you can always tell the story from another perspective, and um, that's what's the Birch Bark House is the name of that series, and I highly recommend that. She's taken up a second thread through it with McCoons came out this. It's book five, came out last year in the spring. Maria, you are, as our children's books editor, our resident expert on children's literature, and you read so much of it. Could you just tell us what's your favorite book in the Little House series and maybe also your favorite moment? Oh, that's so hard. (laughs) I love them all. Um, I will say I think the most dramatic and kind of the edge of your seat one is The Long Winter, which is about the blizzard where pretty much the whole town almost freezes to death and dies and because they haven't prepared. They haven't, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you know, they're, uh, I'm going to pick a, a, the moment where there's a, an, an old Native American who comes by the, the town shop to tell everyone, this is, you, you need to leave. This is a 20-year storm coming. This is going to be the worst winter ever. And they, they you know, they don't listen to him. <laughs> And the result is, you know, a lot of suffering and terror and near starvation for the entire town. Well, this is a, a week of wintry storm weather here in New York, so perhaps an appropriate book to talk about. Maria, thanks so much. Sure. Thanks, Pamela. Maria Russo is our children's books editor. And this week in The Times, she has a fantastic story about the Little House on the Prairie series and Laura Ingalls Wilder's legacy.
Alan Burdick joins us now. His new book is called Why Time Flies, a Mostly Scientific Investigation. Alan, thank you for being here. Thank you. It's it's exciting. All right. I'm very interested in the word mostly in your subtitle. Why is this <laughs> why is it a mostly scientific investigation? Well, um, this book is is me hanging around scientists and neuroscientists and watching their experiments and sometimes taking part in them and, and writing about the history and, and philosophy of time. Uh, that's, you know, that's maybe half the book. But, but woven in through there is this very kind of quiet sub-narrative of me and my kids, really. And the book took 10 years to, to write in over that time. I became a parent. Um, the, the kids weren't even born when I started. And um, in a lot of ways, it's sort of a meditation on becoming a parent and watching my kids grow into what we call time, all the many things that time is, and, and kind of ultimately coming to grips myself with with the responsibility of, of coming to grips with time myself. I sort of joke it's, it's sort of a coming-of-age story, both for my kids and, and for me. I feel like one doesn't know anything about just how fast time goes or how slowly it goes until you have kids in a weird way, or it becomes exacerbated on both ends. Did you find that? Exactly. And and it's almost like, you know, part of it is I'm sort of so maybe over-invested in in my kids' lives that I feel like at at some level I'm doing all the things that they do, Mm -hmm. you know? So I'm like learning the alphabet all over again, and I'm learning how to play soccer and all this stuff that they do. I kind of do at some level too, or I certainly drive them to and from. Um, so it's like I'm living these two more extra lives in addition to my own in the same span of time. When you set out to write this book, before you had kids, what was it that you wanted to find out about time? It just it sounds so naive now when I look back and sort of misguided. I studied history and philosophy of science as a student in college, and um, my advisor was and is a historian in um, the philosophy of physics. And so I, I was introduced pretty early on to Einstein and relativity and space-time, and, which I found and find fascinating. But I also felt like at some level it didn't seem to have a whole lot to do with what I experience day-to-day and moment-to-moment, and, and that there was this other kind of time in me mm-hmm. swirling around enabling me to perceive the world as I do. And I, and I just didn't know what that was, really, and, and where it came from. Um, and I, I wanted to find out, you know, really, is there a difference between the kind of time that's in me and the, and the time that's out there? You, um, you're an experienced science writer, so you're used to grappling with um, sometimes abstract or technical issues. But the philosophy of physics has to be a challenge in a way to kind of bring down to earth and, and, and make concrete. Yeah, that's why I didn't write about it at all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no, I, I kind of made a conscious choice really early on, partly to spare my own poor brain, but because, you know, I feel like when we talk about time, it easily becomes this really abstract, hard to grasp stuff. Um, and certainly what it is when you talk about physics. Whereas I was trying to get at, you know, the kind of time that 
we live in and in some ways is, is almost tactile. You know, we, we do have really personal, very intimate relationships with time. Um, and so I wanted to focus really on really experiments mm-hmm. and talking to people and, and to really kind of keep it grounded as much as I could in the here and now and in, in the tangible. And so I don't really talk about the philosophy of physics at all. I, I, there, I really hardly talk about the philosophy of time at all. Mm-hmm. Um, volumes have been written about the philosophy of time, and, and none of us want to listen to that stuff. Nor read it. <laughs> well, some people do. Give us one of those down-to-earth experiments that you write about in the book. Probably the one that jumps out, and, and it's one that you know that has been talked about before. But I did spend a lot of time with a neuroscientist named David Eagleman, who is now at Stanford. And he has spent a lot of time trying to understand, I would call kind of a conscious or, or almost subconscious timescale of activities and experiences we have that last between maybe half a second to a couple of seconds. And one of the things he's wanted to know is, does you know, time really slow down when you're in a stressful situation? And, and if so, why? And so he designed this experiment where he had um, subjects go to this amusement park, this sort of super thrill amusement park, and do a free fall from 100 feet up from a tower backward into a net. He kind of rigged up an experiment where he could kind of gauge whether your sense of time, uh, your sense of duration was was slowing down Mm -hmm. uh, compared to when you actually watched other people fall. And I took part in that, and uh, it was it was a little scary, mostly for me because I'm I'm afraid of heights. Um, and you know, for him, it really did demonstrate that time does not slow down in stressful situations. It, it, he sort of he's getting at one of the kind of fundamental insights about psychological time, which is psychological time is actually a lot of different experiences. It's you know understanding before and after, it's understanding duration, and none of those experiences is universal across the senses. You can alter your sense of how long something lasts visually without necessarily altering your sense of how long something lasts orally, you know, with your ears, audibly. You mentioned earlier that you spent 10 years on this book. I'm assuming that wasn't the time frame for your book about time when you set out to write it? Was that... No, no, that was definitely not my publisher's time frame. <laughs> Did that become um, a kind of cruel irony as you as you worked on the book over the years? Yes, and a cruel punishment for my poor editor and publisher. Um, and, you know, number one, thank goodness they stuck around uh, and, and waved me out. Um, yeah, no, I thought this was going to take a couple of years or three years. I, I'm not really known as a fast writer, and if I'd really thought about it at all, I might not have even taken this on. But, you know, I did start it literally weeks before my kids were born. We had twins. And so those first couple of years were not exactly productive. And right. then I had some productive years. And anyone, I don't know, this thing happened, that thing happened. <laughs> anyone Life who happened, has twins it, gets a pass as far as I'm uh, concerned. I, I don't know. But I did find about halfway through, I began to think, you know, what this book really needs is for something to happen. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't want to just give you a bunch of experiments, this one and this one and this one. I want to give you a narrator. I want to give you a narrative, and something's mm-hmm. got to happen to my narrator. And, and what happens to my narrator is he gets older and his life changes, and and 
he becomes a parent and he's got to grapple with some new things and he's got to take on a different attitude toward time. And that is what ultimately shapes the book. Well, then every book about time should take 10 years to write. Damn it. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like that's the way to do it. I mean, the great thing about time moving in one direction only is that it means I don't have to do this again. But we get to read it. So, Alan, thank yes. you. <laughs> again and again, I hope. Alan Burdick is the author of Why Time Flies, a mostly scientific investigation reviewed by Carlo Rovelli in this week's book review. My colleagues Greg Coles and John Williams join us now to talk about what we and other people are reading. Hi, guys. Hey, Pamela. Hi, Pamela. All right, Greg, let's talk about the other people. Well, um, all the action this week is on the hardcover fiction list. There are five new titles. Um, Some familiar names. Ian Rankin is back on the list with a new novel called Rather Be the Devil. That's at number 14. Not a familiar name. Sarah Pinborough uh, has a thriller called Behind Her Eyes, new at number 15. Um, Alex Berenson, former Times reporter and now a spy thriller uh, writer, has a new entry in in his John Wells series that's called The Prisoner. It's new at number eight. And um, Lisa Gardner, the suspense thriller writer, has a um, new novel called Right Behind You that makes its debut right at the top of the list. There's just one new title in nonfiction this week. Um, It's Timothy B. Tyson's The Blood of Emmett Till, which made some news uh, for its revelation that the woman at the center of the Emmett Till case, the store clerk who claimed that he had flirtatiously grabbed her around the waist, um, she's admitted that she made that story up, which people kind of assumed all yeah. along, but now she, she's finally uh, said as much. A little late. That That's new on the list at number 13. All right. John, what are you reading? Uh, I'm reading Ali Smith's new novel called Autumn. Um, she's a British writer. She's been, I think she's been a Booker Prize finalist three times, so she's very well known over in Britain. And uh, this is the first in an ambitious new series of four books that are going to be pegged to the seasons, like Vivaldi's <laughs> Concertos. And Dwight Garner reviewed it this week in the paper, and he raved about it, which is what caused me to pick it up. We also have her By the Book interview online now, which is which is very interesting. She's a very wide-ranging reader. This is the story of a 101-year-old man and his friendship with a 32-year-old woman who is a lecturer in art history. And they met when she was a child and he lived next door to her and her family. And now it flashes back to then and then forward to now when she's visiting him in a a hospital where he's not doing that well. And um, Smith is kind of, I've, I've picked her up a couple of times in the past, but in the pretty distant past and she never really took with me she's she's kind of an experimentalist at heart um but this is a pretty straightforward story and she wrote it very quickly this is it, the reviews in britain really made note of how it captures the post-brexit mood uh, in the country so she really wrote it just uh, fairly recently and i think the the goal is to get these books out pretty quickly so that the seasonal quartet is finished within probably just a few years wow yeah all right what about you greg what are you reading uh, well i know what you're reading <laughs> i'm still reading we I, all I, know. I, i've <laughs> taken calling it the new york marathon uh, I'm still reading the Robert Caro uh, book, The Power Broker, about Robert Moses. You know, I, I said last week that I was at about page 100 in that book. I was g- generous to myself because I'm just reaching page 100 now. <laughs> so I, I'm obviously reading it um, kind of in, in the 10 minutes before I fall asleep at night. Um, um, Another thing I said last week uh, that I should also correct, um, I credited Sam Tannenhouse with writing a profile of Robert Caro. And um, somebody on Twitter, Scott Porch, uh, actually pointed out that that profile was not written by Sam Tannenhouse. It was written by a different former editor of the book review, Charles 
Charles McGrath um, profiled Robert Caro. One day you're going to start confusing me with these people, Fred. <laughs> you can attribute all the articles that in the New York Times Magazine to me that you like. Um, but I, I'm just loving this book, um, which, you know, m- my wife was surprised to hear that. She said, oh, <laughs> you're still reading that thing. How's it going? And I was like, it's it's amazing. It's it is really, amazing. It, it is um, gripping for a book that is about kind of urban planning. I, I'm a little bit of a geek that way. I, I loved the land use stuff in Anna Karenina as much as I did the infidelity. <laughs> so, you know, was, I, all the, you know, peasant um, organizational things. I was like, this is great. I can't say so, I share that. Uh, <laughs> so, so I'm uh, kind of the prime audience for this book. Um, <laughs> and, and he is such an elegant writer. You know, I'll be talking about this book for three years. <laughs> but um, I just wanted to read this um, paragraph from page 75 that I got to this week. Um where uh, the, the young Robert Moses, kind of newly in New York City government, um, has just proposed completely revamping the civil service system. This is in, at the height of Tammany Hall, and um, it's, it's all patronage. Um, and he is trying to strip away the patronage system and replace it with a merit a meritocracy. Um, and his proposal for doing that is with these kind of scorecards where the managers have to rank each of their employees on the like finely detailed each element of their job. And there's such resistance to this. Um, but but Moses is convinced this is the, the way to go. It was the proposal of a fanatic Caro writes, John Calvin specifying permissible arrangements for women's hair in 16th century Geneva was not more thorough than was Bob Moses enumerating the functions and responsibilities of New York's civil servants. No aspect of conduct on the job was too small to be graded. Even personality must be reduced to number. Personality, Moses said, includes those intangible elements, the existence of which do not readily admit of proof, but nevertheless, each employee must be rated on personality. Men would have to make sacrifices for the sake of the system. Acknowledging that some present employees would not score high enough on his tests for the jobs they held, he had a simple solution. Such employees would have to accept demotions and pay cuts. Unnecessary employees, he said, would have to be eliminated. <laughs> the, the proposal, I, I should add, did not go well. Yes. <laughs> Pamela ranks us I'm, on personality every week. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's a fresh ranking every week. Um, Pamela, yeah, what are you reading? I'm wondering what Robert Moses's uh, personality <laughs> ranking would be at the end of this book. Um, I'm reading, so I fell off the self-help wagon, I, I, I regret to say, because I really, really, I want to do it. I'll go back to it. Um, and I had sworn that I would only read things that I could easily put down. And now I'm doing the opposite um, by reading an Agatha Christie novel. And weirdly, it's my first Agatha Christie novel. She's one of those writers that you think you would have read. But I mm-hmm. think that what I have actually done is seen like very local uh, theater productions <laughs> of adaptations of her books and never actually read one. And um, I picked this up because I was <laughs> I needed to get away from the self-help and how to and impulse buy books. But also she was on my mind because a few months ago, a friend of mine here at the Times, um, Susan Dominus, uh, who writes for the New York Times Magazine and occasionally reviews for us, was caught, I think, in Texas without a book and asked me for advice. And I was telling her like all these great new books that I thought might be absorbing. And a few weeks later, I said, you know, what did you end up reading? And she said, oh, I just downloaded 
Cumulated and Agatha Christie. It's so reliable. <laughs> and I thought, huh, all right, I've never done that. Um, so I'm reading, and then there were none. And two things that I learned from just the cover and right inside is that Agatha Christie is the most widely published author of all time and in any language, outsold only by the Bible and Shakespeare. Wow. Which is pretty impressive. And then also, this is apparently one of the Queen of Mysteries personal favorites. So <laughs> they give a little list of the books that she herself, I guess, liked best. And this is one of them. And I have it because apparently there was, was or is or will be a lifetime TV movie adaptation of this. And um, then there were none. This, this is one of her uh, traditional kind of country estate locked door mysteries. Is that right? Everyone's kind of squirreled away. And, yes, it's and like it's like clue. One by one. Yes, exactly right. Um, but do not reveal the ending because I'm, <laughs> I'm not quite there. That's for my commute home. It's funny because I I never think about Agatha Christie, but this week I had reason to because I met um, an author, a British author named Anthony Horowitz, who has a new book coming out this spring called The Magpie Murders. And he's uh, he's he's well-known in Britain as a, as a novelist, too, but he's also a, a very prolific TV writer. He's behind the series Foil's War, which I haven't watched, but people were raving about. Um, and he, at, at, when I met him, was just raving about Agatha Christie and how she's the best ever and no one can ever touch her and her structure is perfect. And so I very came very close to walking into Barnes & Noble after I met him and buying Have you ever read Agatha books, Christie? I've never read her. Have you ever read it? Yeah, I went on a jag in, I, I want to say, kind of late middle school. where I, mm-hmm. I was a big genre reader in in middle school um certainly crime also science fiction and fantasy um and so i kind of worked my way through the agatha christie section of my local library and john mcdonald and a bunch of other you did not work your way through there's like (laughs) a hundred of them well you know my my local library maybe only had 20 (laughs) because you've already shamed us by telling us that you like you know like the boring passages of middlemark and (laughs) that you read prolifically although um, i think if you glued all of Agatha Christie's books together, it might equal The Power Broker. That's right. In terms of length. So maybe right. he did do it. All right, John, Greg, thanks so much. Thanks, Pamela. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.